week, the government's warned not to rush the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Let's get the job done properly and withdraw when the time is right. And hopefully that will be before 2014, 2015. Also, are amputee veterans being treated properly by the NHS? One of the concerns we would have is uh, the emergence of a bit of a postcode lottery. Uh, that's going to be one area that my review is going to be looking at. Headlines. Eleven more people have died from flu in the UK in the past week, taking the total so far from the winter outbreak to 50. All but five had swine flu. The government's admitted there are problems getting the jab to vulnerable people in some parts of the country. A 20-year-old male nurse has been arrested on suspicion of sexual abuse. The man worked at the Little Stars Nursery in Birmingham. Meanwhile, a couple's been jailed for assaulting children at a home on Jersey in the 1970s. The first British fatality in Afghanistan after Christmas has been repatriated today. Warrant Officer Class 2 Charlie Wood was killed in an explosion in Helmand Province last week. Police searching for Joe Yates' killer have begun searching drains. They've started examinations around the flat in Bristol where the landscape architect lived with her boyfriend. And there have been several bids for HMS Invincible after the aircraft carrier was put up for auction on the government's version of the eBay website. Despite a campaign to turn the vessel into a museum, the MOD says it's likely to be sold for scrap. This is the 10th year of our military engagement in Afghanistan and the most senior British military official in the country is in no doubt the deadline set for withdrawing combat forces will dominate 2011. Lieutenant General James Bucknell insists progress can be made towards David Cameron's 2015 target date. But how much progress must be made before foreign troops can leave and how do you shore up the progress made so far? Questions I put earlier to the former head of the army, General Sir Richard Dannett. 2011, I think, is an important year because it gives us a chance to consolidate and move forward from what has been um, ground hard won over the last couple of years. Um, I think we all know that the operational concept of clear, hold and build, clearing areas of Taliban and holding them securely so we can build a better life for the people makes sense. But it's been difficult to do that as well as we'd want to because, we, frankly, we haven't had the numbers on the ground. I think that issue has now been settled and we are responsible for a smaller piece of territory with many more soldiers, um, British soldiers, some American support, uh, Afghan National Army as well so we can really hold those areas that we've secured. This gives us a chance to move forward. I think that's encouraging. You've said this week there's a real chance of success in Afghanistan. Is that down to just, just numbers on the ground? No, it's not. But um, everything has to begin somewhere. And I think everyone who understands this campaign, indeed any counterinsurgency properly, knows that the solution is ultimately a political solution and that um, success lies in the governmental and economic fields and other areas. The military has to enable a secure environment so these other things can take effect. And that's what's, I think, beginning to happen now. I think that's why it's exciting. There's a lot of hard work, a lot of blood, a lot of cost, a lot of lives um, lost and, and changed forever on the side of our people over the last three or four years, since 2006 in particular. But I think we've now got an opportunity to capitalize on that, on that difficult and hard-won investment and actually start to see a measure of success 
um, from now on. We've also heard this week that tribal elders in, in Sangin have agreed to stop attacking ISAF forces and to drive out uh, uh, militants, which suggests, I guess, that the hearts and minds strategy is working. Would you agree? Well, that's the whole point. When the people feel sufficiently secure, sufficiently confident in us, in the Afghan National Army, in their own tribal chiefs and district governors and so on, then they can put their support behind um, the government forces, if you like. Um, and that then puts the Taliban on the back foot and that's why you'll see movements such as in Sangin where the Taliban are being excluded. Frankly, any sensible Afghan, if he thinks about it, doesn't want to fall back under the very repressive regime of the Taliban that they experienced a number of years ago. There is a better way, and we're trying to show them that better way. It's now the time to hold our nerve in some way. Are you worried that early withdrawal could prove disastrous now? Well, that's right. Um, I mean, the government has said that combat troops will be out by... 2014, 2015, I think that's a very good objective to move towards. But we mustn't be driven by time. We've got to be driven by conditions on the ground. And I think if one takes the point that maybe we are turning some kind of corner, we are um, now able to move forward towards a degree of success, don't let's prejudice that by precipitate talking about um, withdrawing our soldiers. I think all of us um, don't want to see a single British soldier for one day or one hour longer in Afghanistan than we need to be. But given that we've been there for 10 years and been there in the South since 2006 in very difficult circumstances, let's get the job done properly um, and withdraw when the time is right. And hopefully that will be before 2014, 2015. Who do you think has the dominant voice in discussions on the withdrawal timetable? You alluded to it earlier. Is it, is it military leaders or politicians? I think it's got to be um, a discussion that's held together. Everyone must understand that um, the final solution is essentially a political and an economic uh, solution. Um, and this has got to be sorted out between the international community in Kabul and the um, Afghan government. So it, it, it's, it's something everyone's got to understand. General Sir Richard Dannett there. Well, I'm joined in the studio by Major General Julian Thompson, a former commander of the Royal Marines, and also by our uh, defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Happy New Year to you both, belatedly. Uh, uh, Christopher, we've just heard Sir Richard there say that we need to get the job done properly and withdraw when the time is right. Is 2015 the right time? Sounds like a politician, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, it is. We get these phrases, withdraw when the time is right. He says it's a political solution. Uh, we've got to say to the people, uh, you've got to understand, we're trying to show you a better way of living it doesn't take any consideration for the fact that in Afghanistan you have uh, tribal systems, you have the uh, animosities and suspicions towards the Pushtuns, which is mainly the Taliban that you have the warlords all ganging up, you can take territory as soon as you move, what happens people start moving into it and these, this is the sort of reality it's also the fact that the, uh, the military uh, and the politicians do understand but they never say so that the solution to Afghanistan is not in Afghanistan, a very, very corrupt government with corrupt leadership and corrupt systems. It is in India, Pakistan, Pakistan the most corrupt government in the, in, in, in the region, the Central Asian republics and Iran. There's the solution, not the battle group or whatever you send to Afghanistan or want to withdraw by 2014. Well, we're going to talk about uh, Pakistan in more detail in a few minutes. Uh, Julian, firstly, though, how significant is this deal with tribal elders in Afghanistan in Sangin to end attacks on ISAF forces and, and to try and drive out the insurgents? Well, it's very significant, but it's significant in a very shallow way when you then look at the bigger picture which, which Christopher has, has uh, told us about. 
because it, it won't just depend on that. It depends very much on outside forces and outside factors, like the people in the South hate the people in the North of Afghanistan. They don't like Karzai, who they regard as, as, as an outsider. Uh, when you put ANA troops who are actually from the North to operate down in the South, they're regarded as foreigners. So it is much more complicated than just a simple matter of the fact that tribal elders have agreed to, 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 to uh, tell tales on the Taliban if they try and make put ID, EDs in the street. Well, the uh, Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, has been uh, in Afghanistan this week. While there, he insisted the conditions are right to make significant advances this year. For the first time in Afghanistan since late summer uh, of last year, we've had sufficient numbers in Afghanistan, sufficient equipment in Afghanistan, and sufficient support to be able to carry out the mission properly. I think up till now, we've always uh, been running short. Now I think that we've got sufficient mass, I think we've got the right force densities, uh, and I think we've got the right strategy. It will require a bit of strategic patience, but I think that we will, I think, now see this mission through properly. Christopher, he's talking there about getting the numbers right. We've finally done that, in his opinion. Is that just a, a, a cheap dig at the previous administration? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure it is. I mean, we can we can actually dig at the whole lot of them who have actually made a complete horlicks of it. I mean, should we be there in the first place? And there's the first question. But it's certainly true. I mean, just before Christmas, uh, the uh, chief of defence staff uh, was talking about this, and he said that when he'd been in Afghanistan, Afghanistan say, six weeks earlier, um, he, he was doing things which he couldn't have done, say, six months earlier. So there is that sort of progress. The problem is that when you withdraw troops, can you still do it? And that is the consistently the problem that we face. But you can come out easily in 2014. But let's remember also about 2014. I mean, Julian is the expert on this. The logistics of withdrawing are enormous. Uh, but you start planning now. And if you want to come out in 2014, political decision, the army and the navy... And the Air Force will actually work how to do it. And don't forget, in terms of the Navy, one in three British forces in Afghanistan by March of this year is going to be Navy, not Army. Well, uh, while all the talk on both sides of the Atlantic has been about withdrawal, one senior U.S. senator is talking about permanent U.S. bases in Afghanistan. Lindsey Graham says an enduring relationship between American and Afghan forces would stop the Taliban regaining influence in the country. Uh, Julian, realistically, for all the talk of withdrawal, uh, foreign troops' presence there is going to be long-lasting, isn't it? Well, there may be what she's alluding to is permanent bases out of which um, special forces and a very high technical kit operates. In other words, people who are carrying out high highly delicate and, and, I hate to use the word, but I will use it, surgical missions against people who are leading um, the Taliban at the behest of the Afghan government. And I, I think we will see bases left in there of that kind, but not the huge bases like Bastion and, 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 and the huge presence in, in uh, Kabul that we've got at the moment. Well, across the border in, in Pakistan, the situation looks increasingly uh, unstable, as Christopher alluded to a few moments ago. A leading figure in the Pakistan People's Party, Punjab Governor Salim Tazir, was shot dead this week by one of his own bodyguards. It's thought he was targeted because of recent comments he'd made about Pakistan's blasphemy laws. Hussein Haqqani is Pakistan's ambassador to the United States. It's very obvious that Salman Tazir was targeted because of his brave stand against the man-made law of blasphemy in Pakistan, which many people think needs to be revisited. Uh, this is about the two conflicting visions for Pakistan, the theocratic and the democratic. Some people want a tolerant Pakistan that is part of the 21st century and some people advocate a closed Pakistan which is not part of the 21st century.
Well, the Prime Minister, Youssef Raza Gilani, is struggling to hold his ruling coalition together after its second largest member walked out. Christopher, you mentioned it earlier on, Pakistan is the key to uh, stability in the wider region, isn't it? It has been since 1947, I mean, since Pakistan was formed, an artificial country, of course. But the, what's particularly interesting about this assassination, and um, that is that Montas um, Kadri, uh, the, the, the person that uh, supposedly, and says he, he, he killed uh, Salman Tazir, um, is supported. 500 clerics yesterday said this man is a soldier of Islam. In other words, uh, you don't have to be Al-Qaeda, you don't have to be a militant group. An individual can take up the flag, of even of the green flag of Wahhabism, and do things in the name of Islam. That is one reason that certain groups, such as the, the, the new uh, counter-terrorism group, which was formed in 2009 in Pakistan, why they ought to be running at the moment and trying to control things. And nothing has happened in Islamabad, nothing has happened by the Pakistan government to make that organisation work. And one of the reasons is because it's the military that indirectly control what's going on in Pakistan and within the military, the intelligence services. There is the problem. The rest of it is utterly corrupt. You can't do the job that the Americans would say they want doing, the British would say they want doing, all the time you have that going on in, in, in Afghanistan, in, in Pakistan. Uh, Julian, just quickly, how worried should we be about the situation in Pakistan? Very. I mean, the ultimate nightmare is an extremist-controlled country which is a nuclear-armed power that the extremists will get their hands on the, on the nuclear levers. That is what they want to get, and that is the ultimate nightmare. We should be really worried about it. OK, uh, gentlemen, thank you for the time being. We're going to uh, move on now to other issues. The Ark Royals farewell tour, which ended last month in Portsmouth, is the most public sign yet of the speed with which the cuts from the Strategic Defence and Security Review are being imposed. And that will continue through 2011. Some questions remain. Will RAF Lossiemouth survive or RAF Kinloss? But for military leaders, the task this year is to find ways of enforcing the big changes demanded by ministers. Uh, Christopher, give us a sense at, at what pace we're working at now. How fast are things moving? It was going on. I mean, for example, this month HMS Chatham goes, uh, and everybody thought HMS Chatham would stay. But I worked out there are seven major ships going between now and Easter. There's the Chatham, the Campbelltown, Cumberland, the Cornwall, and then the RFAs. Don't forget, these are the people that supply everything like fuel, uh, uh, resources, etc., to warships. Uh, Largs Bay, um, there's the Bayleaf and the Fort George. By the end of April... All those ships will, will, will be gone. And I think that also, illustrious, it will go in 2014. Everything is underway. This almost as if there's no, no drawback. But what there is happening now, and what is fascinating, and it's getting underway right now as we, you know, this month, and that is the, the interest groups who say, this is crazy. This was actually a very bum review. I mean, really daft. And that lots of people, including some of the chiefs of staff, were telling big porkies about the situation. And I think that the backlash against what happened, the sort of thing that I've just been talking about now, getting rid of some of those ships, I think that's about to start. And Julian, this is in the week where we learned that uh, officials at the MOD have shared, what is it, up to £40 million in bonuses <laughs> in the last uh, six months or so. How does that sit with you? Well, this is where cuts could be made, and cuts could be made, for example, in the procurement system, which is an absolute disgrace. And I would like to underline what Christopher said. This is not a strategic defence review. It's a cost-cutting review, and it's not been based on strategic uh, parameters at all. 
Let's uh, turn our attention now then to uh, the Middle East. Tony Blair's warned of genuine and profound trouble in the region if the Israelis and Palestinians don't start talking to each other again. Uh, the former Prime Minister, now an envoy to the Middle East, is in Jerusalem trying to revive the stalled peace talks. Essentially what we've got to do over the next few weeks, and I think it is measured in weeks and not months, is first of all we've got to give shape to the negotiation. We've got to try and see, OK, we agree on the principle of a two-state solution, but what does that really mean? And the second thing is we've got to continue to make the changes on the ground, the reality, which is improving Palestinian capacity, its institutions, building its economy, further opening up Gaza, which actually over the past year or 80 months is about the one set of things that have given us hope in this situation. Christopher, what do you make of what uh, Tony Blair had to say there? Well, yes, but um, the, the truth is that if you want to get a solution in the Middle East, then there must be one. Because unless there is a solution in the Middle East, the whole thing is going to boil over. And it could boil over this year. And when we talk about boil over, we're not talking about some border war. We're talking about something much, much, much bigger. Problem is, President Obama, who is the only person that can actually guarantee any peace process, has not lost interest, but he can't handle it. The White House is not doing this at the moment. And if the White House doesn't do the peace agreement or peace talks, then it won't happen at all. You see, you take something, it's a wider thing. Things that happen in different parts of the Middle East have a knock-on effect. For example, what's going on in Egypt at the moment with the attacks on the Coptic church, it's concentrating the mind in the Egyptians. The Egyptians normally do the business with the Israelis. The Turks want to get much more influence with, with, with the Iranians. The Iranians are actually sort of saying, uh, Iraqis, for example, we're going to cause trouble. And what happens yesterday? We have Muqtada al-Sada, who, who is the guy that fought against us and fought against certainly Americans uh, in, in, in the war, has returned from Iran to, to Iraq. It's the most important event this month. It is the sign of a new beginning with a cooperation between his lot, who are largely rebellious and also fundamentalists, and Maliki, the new prime minister. After all, how did he become prime minister? It's because uh, al-Sadr actually supported him. That sort of thing is a complication in the idea of just trying to get a, 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 a solution to something which seems to be no longer matters to anybody, and that is Israel and Gaza. And the solution to that is in the White House. It's not in Jerusalem and it's not in Gaza City. So why has President Obama lost interest then just bigger fish to fry oh, he's got so much to i mean you know he's, he's uh, the november elections he lost the congress uh, he lost the house of representatives uh, there's a bigger gavel in there at the moment it's being wielded by the republicans uh, he's still got the he's still got the senate uh, but he's got much bigger things to do and don't forget the election campaign has started for his re-election in 2012. A lot of his people are actually leaving the White House now to join the re-election team. There's a, if it, unless he gets re-elected in 2012, forget the Middle East. And very, very quickly, Tony Blair's time frame that he's put on it, is that the time frame to sort things out or, or his own I, time frame? <coughs> I keep thinking it's Tony Blair's time frame. People are start, starting saying, look, do we need to spend all this money on Tony Blair? Isn't he yesterday's man? Uh, we'll see on the 18th when he comes to talk about his part in the Middle East to the Chilcot in inquiry on Iraq. Still to come this week, Germany's last conscripts sign up for national service. Most people who now say it is about time have a feeling of regret in their heart, but it is time. 
Now, is the NHS doing a good enough job of caring for former servicemen and women who've lost limbs? The government's not sure, and this week it's ordered a review. After military charities raise concerns, treatment and support aren't up to the standards of the military facility at Headley Court. The review is being led by Andrew Morrison, a former Royal Navy medical officer who's now a Conservative MP. David Cameron gave me a call a couple of days after he formed his government to ask me to look into the health care provision for servicemen and veterans and I've completed the first part of that study which was around mental health which I decided uh, was perhaps the priority for immediate action. I'm very happy that the government has accepted that report in full and is now carrying out its recommendations. And the second part of the work is to try to look at the provision in the NHS for um, servicemen, servicewomen that have lost limbs and whether the prosthetic service, the limb-fitting service, is sufficient for their needs, and being mindful particularly of the excellent service that's provided uh, when people are still serving at Headley Court, which is acknowledged as being a world leader in its field. We need to make sure that level of provision continues for people when they become civilians. How big a gap do you think there is now, if there is one, between the provision at places like Headley Court and in the civilian sector? But if there is a gap, I don't think it's worked through yet because people, if they leave the armed forces having become disabled, of course, it's going to take some time for them to need follow-up care uh, at a limb centre in, in civilian life. Um, but when uh, they do need uh, that service, uh, when their prostheses need to be uh, revised, I think then perhaps some gaps may open up in some parts of the country. And I think one of the concerns we would have is uh, the emergence of a bit of a postcode lottery um, and that's going to be one area that my review is going to be looking at. Well, Jerome Church, the General Secretary of BLESMA, the uh, British Limbless Ex-Servicemen's Association, uh, is on the line now. Jerome, thank you very much uh, for being with us. What are your main concerns about the current system? Um, Well, I think that last point that Andrew Morrison was making has always been a a major concern for us. and We have a long experience of dealing with a artificial, what we call the limb service around the country, and there are 41 uh, centres. Um, and of course there's the difference. I mean, some have larger budgets than others, and some can cope, therefore, better with high-tech, high-specification um, than others, and that needs to be smoothed out. Is that something though, that should fall on the NHS? Should military facilities like those at Headley Court have a longer-term role in caring for amputee well, veterans? In fact, Headley Court is, is, is very, very recent. Um, prosthesis have never been done by the military until about five years ago. So people like me who've been serving and I had to use the NHS throughout my service um, after being injured in Ireland many years ago. Um, so Headley Court is brand new and it's fantastic and, and we, we were delighted to see what Headley Court w- w- took on and what it prescribed to people. And We very quickly identified a problem and we said, crikey, when the guys leave it's going to be very different for them. Um, and that's how we, that's why we've been sort of pushing hard against the previous government and, and, and today's government to say, look, great promises are being made, but we know, and our knowledge of, 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 of the industry, the prosthetic community, we know that there, there could be a major problem ahead if we don't get this properly sorted out. And that's why we welcome this review. Give me a sense, Jerome, if you would, of your experience going through the system, as it were, and using the NHS in that way. Well, it, it can get... I mean, I'm a very simple case, um, but I, I know many of my members um, you know, do have problems. And don't forget, we've got 
uh, quite a few, nearly 2,000 members uh, out there you know, who are already veterans, uh, who have sort of problems of getting appointments in any timely fashion, and, and, and actually getting uh, uh, sort of sufficient specification artificial limbs, you know, high-tech stuff, which is available now, which should be available to people, particularly of the working age, if you like. And, uh, and this, this has not been happening for the veterans um, of comparatively recent conflicts before post-9-11, if you like. OK, Jerome, Jerome Church, the General Secretary of uh, Blesma, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the programme. Now, Germany's last conscripts started their military service this week. It's the biggest change to the country's armed forces in more than half a century. The 12,000 drafted this week end a tradition dating back to 1945. Conscription was introduced in Germany to stop the military ever becoming an elite force in the country able to seize political power. But times have changed, and after 65 years, Germany's military will soon be fully professional. Brigade General Carton Jakobsen is Chief of Staff of German Land. Command. It is about time that uh, we adapt to the environment that we are living in. Uh, the conscripted army that we have had to date, and as one of the last countries in Western Europe, uh, is still a product of earlier times and earlier necessities. We have to orientate far more towards current operations and what we have to do there, and that is one of the major reasons why we have to adapt and change. More flexible in future? More deployable. Uh, what we did so far was training recruits. We had the advantage of gaining something like seven to 8,000 soldiers, longer-serving soldiers, out of conscription per year. But we needed to have 10,000 trainers available to keep conscription going. Now, that is 10,000 professional soldiers that we have immediately uh, for deployable op operations. We will go down numbers considerably, of course, because a professional army will be smaller than a conscripted army. But the aim is to get a higher percentage of the army ready to be deployed on operations. It's regarded as a citizen's force in, in some respects. A conscripted army by nature uh, brings with it the citizen that comes into the services and is a sort of a linchpin between the armed forces and the civil society. Most of the young men who have done their conscription and who you're talking to will find that it was a very good experience in their lifetime. You hear that all over the place. Now that will go. Uh, you will have a higher grade of professionalization uh, in the fact that it might depart us from society or anything, I don't think so. I think we're very firm and well established. We have our firm position in the German society and I don't think that that will change just by taking conscription away. And how do you think that this is um, going to go down generally uh, throughout the military? Well, throughout the military there has been a discussion over years. Uh, I personally have always been greatly in favor of conscription because it gave us fresh new ideas, it gave us fresh new people, it gave us people who had an interest because it's been more or less a voluntary service over the last years. If you wanted to opt out, you could. Uh, so we had the people who showed an interest in us and therefore we recruited a lot of them. That wasn't the major factor. It was a very good link to, uh, to the public world. So therefore, I think most people who now say it is about time have a feeling of regret in their heart. But it is time. Well, Major General Julian Thompson and Christopher Lee are uh, still both with me in the studio. Christopher, why do you think conscription lasted so long in Germany? 
Well, it was the one way, one way of getting forces for, uh, for, uh, for another. It actually spread the, the load of approval for the armed forces as they were. When, when Germany joined NATO in 1954, they had to do this. Unlike, for example, the United Kingdom, where we had great colonial commitments. And by 1960, we couldn't afford the forces anymore. Um, they weren't very well trained. And so we, 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 we came out of it. And with the general saying, you know, a, a volunteer army is a much better army by and large. Julian, is, is this the loss of a great military tradition or inevitable modernization? It's a loss of a great military tradition to the, to the Germans because they've always had uh, conscription before the war, before the First World War, they had conscription and huge reserves in order to produce mass armies. If you want mass armies, you have to have conscription. The problem with conscription, as in fact the, the brigadier said, is you can't really take your place in modern operations. We couldn't do Afghanistan if we had a conscript army. There's no way because they wouldn't be well trained enough. Of course, you, you hear the, the, the sort of almost annual debate in this country that we should bring back national service over here to teach the wayward youngsters a thing or two about life. Is well, that ever going to happen? I wonder what you do with them. When you think <laughs> of the height of conscription, we had places like Hong Kong, Malaya, Cyprus, Africa, all over the world. Aden. Huge Aden, huge numbers of, of young <coughs> men and, and, and women involved in operations all over the world. We don't have that. And the moment. other thing, of course, now is we're actually cutting back on the numbers, so we actually don't need them at all. I mean, gardening, gardening and clearing up the streets and getting rid of graffiti, that's what I think the next conscription uh, will be, and the old and bold are always calling for it anyway. Yes, indeed. Uh, another debate for another day. Um, we have to leave it there. Major General Julian Thompson, thank you very much uh, for your time today. Just quickly before we go, as ever, <coughs> any other business, Christopher? What, what should we be looking out for in the next week? OK, the House of Commons Defence Committee is back. They're going to be uh, examining what's going on in Afghanistan. The Public Accounts Committee of MPs, they're back. They're going to be looking at how the MOD cooked the books, cooked the books over the buying of the, the two new carriers. And there's a nice, nice story going in Geneva that the CIA has been rumbled, that he's been uh, putting moles into organisations in Geneva. That's going to blow next week. OK, so plenty more to talk about uh, next week, We love week, of spy course. stories. We love spy stories. More on that uh, in the weeks to come, uh, hopefully. Uh, we have to uh, leave it there just about. That's about it uh, for this week. Just time once again to uh, thank uh, all our guests for being involved in the programme. As ever, a uh, huge thank you to uh, Christopher Lee. Thank you very much for coming in again. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, by the way, about the topics we've covered uh, on the programme today and anything you think we should be uh, talking about in the weeks ahead. Our email address, as ever, is sitrep at bfbs.com. And if you missed any of this week's programme, you can, of course, listen again at bfbs.com slash sitrep. For me, though, for now, it's goodbye. This is Sitrep on BFBS.